Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas, and today we welcome Michael Harriet to The Stacks. Michael is a writer, journalist, poet, author, storyteller, and he is one of those talking heads you've seen on just about every news channel anytime something Black happens. Michael is also the author of a brand new book called Black AF History, The Unwhitewashed Story of America. The book seeks to correct the mythology of Blackness that's been implanted in our collective memory and tells the story of America by the Black people who shaped it. The book provides an educational, hilarious, and searing antidote to the nation's almost true legend of Black history. Today, we talk about why he wanted to write this book in this way, how he hopes Black AF history will change the conversations around American history, and we get into the musical Hamilton. Remember, the Stacks Book Club pick for October is Tar Baby by Toni Morrison, and we will discuss the book on October 25th with Minda Honey. Everything we talk about on each episode of the Stacks can be found in the link in the show notes. If you like this show, or you like books in general, or maybe you just really like snacks, or you want to be a part of a community that is excited about all of those things and more, you must head to patreon.com slash the stacks and join the stacks pack. For just $5 a month, you get to be part of making this show possible. I truly could not make this show without the stacks pack. And you also get perks like our virtual book club meetups, our very active discord that has the best book recommendations, recipes, hot takes on The Bachelor, whatever you need, we've got it on the Discord. Plus, you get our monthly bonus episodes, which right now are audio from the tour. And of course, you get shout outs on this very podcast. So let's do some now. Shout out to our newest members of the Stacks Pack, Christina Bautista, Courtney Hummel, Andrea Roning, Olivia Gabay, and Jalisa Whitley. Thank you all so much for joining the Stacks Pack. And thank you to every single person who is already a part of the Stacks Pack. As I said before, and I will say a million times over, I could not make this show without the Stacks Pack. If you're not in the Stacks Pack yet, head to patreon.com slash the Stacks to join. It is never too late to support this show or any of your favorite artists and creatives. Okay, now it's time for my conversation with Michael Harriet. All right, everybody, I am so excited. I get to talk to, I don't know, maybe the smartest person in the world. I haven't quite decided yet, but I think we're close to that. I'm joined today by author, commentator, Twitter superhero, Michael Harriet. Welcome to The Stacks. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to talk to you about this book. Um, your new book is called Black AF History, The Unwhitewashed Story of America. And for people who aren't familiar yet, will you tell them in about 30 seconds what this book is about? This book is about the history of America through the eyes of Black people. So there are a lot of books that are about the history of America that are kind of by default filtered through the eyes of whiteness. There are a lot of books about Black people filtered through the eyes of Black people, but this is a book about how Black people see America and what we experienced as Americans from the 1400s until basically yesterday. Yeah. I love the framing because it is like sort of the specific shift. It's not about Black people in America and it's not about America. It's about how Black people have seen and experienced America, which is like a slight shift, but it makes such such a difference. Um, why did you want to write this 
book in this way. Where did this idea come from for you? And what did you want to make sure you did with this book? So initially, when I started, I pitched a book. So I used to teach a class called Race as an Economic Construct. A lot of people are always surprised to find out that my background is as an economist, a macroeconomist. And I taught a book, uh, taught a class called Race as an Economic Construct. So I pitched a book called White Peopleology about viewing race through that lens of economics. And every time I met with publishers, they they were like, yeah, we like that idea. But what about that history thing you do on Twitter? (laughs) And so a one-book deal turned into a, a two book deal. And when I originally proposed this, it was 2018. And the title of the first book, White Peopleology, the subtitle, they thought no one would be would understand what it the reference in the subtitle because it was called mm. uh White Peopleology toward a more critical race theory. And they had never heard of critical race theory then. And so they said, so Let's do the history book first. <laughs> and so now everybody knows about critical race theory and I don't have a book on critical race theory. Yeah, well you will. That's the second book. Yeah. Yeah, so that's how it came about. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Um I think so I I follow you on Twitter. I love you on Twitter. I think you do such a great job of like breaking down complicated things for us regular regular people with regular regular size brains. Um and I love that you sort of do, you know, a similar thing in this book, but what I was really struck by was how much new new to me information there was in this book. Um new new people, stories I'd never heard before, but also sort of how you subvert conventional thinking. And I'm wondering, like, is that just who you are? Like, are you just a person who you'll be having a conversation with someone and you'll say something and then they'll be like, wow, I never thought about it that way. Or is there something that you do to sort of subvert conventional thinking? Well, I think part of, in this book, it is a little of each of those things. So I think part of it comes from I was homeschooled until I was 12 years old. So not learning in the conventional American education system, I think Mm -hmm. is part of it. And, you know, of course, being in a black family in a black neighborhood, not having that subconscious deference to whiteness that people are accustomed to. But Mm -hmm. I also intentionally did some things, right? So there are subtle things, for instance, here's, here's one. When I refer to enslaved Africans, right? I did the research. And if I was talking about a specific person, I tried to see where they came here from. What was the tribe or the kingdom or the culture that they came here from? But all the white people in the book are just white people. Now, right. like that people might think that is, un, you know, kind of unnecessary or anti-white or however people will frame it. But when most people learn history, they learn it the exact opposite way, right? right? They learn about the Fritz settlers and the English colonists and the Spanish conquistadors. And then all the black people are just black people, Africans, right? right? They don't have a past history, a political motivation, a religion. And I wanted to kind of be subversive while, sh- subversive while showing America, like, this is your standard. This is the way you teach what right. history from the white perspective. So it should be okay if I do this from the black perspective using your standards. Right. Oh, I love that because that is totally the standard. When you were trying to find information on, you know, the the black people in the book, were you doing your own research trying to find where people came from? Or is that was that information sort of readily available to you? Uh, a lot of it was my own research Uh you know, I mean, of course, it's available if you kind of dig for it. Right. And I and I also had uh, historical consultants. My main consultant on the book, Blair Kelly, who also has a, a book out called Black Folk, um, is a historian. And she's a historian. Uh, she's the now the University of North Carolina's chair for their Department of Southern Studies. So she kind of gave me a curriculum. And sometimes when I reach a wall, she'd tell me, hey, you should look here um, or you should you shouldn't forget to include this or here's a perspective that you didn't include. Um, so mm-hmm. yeah, I did a, a lot of it is primary research. Uh, we went through a lot of black newspapers and black media to find out what black people were thinking 
at that time. So it's not just my perspective about how we would view it, but what black people at the time were thinking about this current or past historical event. Yeah. And you talk about that sort of like a note on sources where you're, you're non-sourceless. You talk about like how people can find this like through records at the churches or, or black media at the time and stuff. And I thought that was a really uh, helpful guide as a reader to kind of get a sense of where your where your headspace was and where you were pulling from. A book like this, a book about American history told from the perspective of black people doesn't exist. But this sort of like writing history again and again, like we do, we do it constantly throughout, throughout history. There's always these new history books, new ways to look at the past. I'm wondering like for your approach, how were you thinking about making this book, like making something that's worth publishing, that's worth spending your time writing on? What was your perspective going in to say, this is the place I want to carve out for, for my book? Well, one, the thing I wanted most was for it to be accessible. So I don't want it to just be a book for people who are really interested in deep dives of history, right? Mm -hmm. So the average black person, I wanted to read it, right? So Mm -hmm. I think I did that by, you know, with you could do little things, graphic design, right? It's kind of formatted graphically as a textbook. So there are inserts and there are quizzes at the end of chapters like, oh, remember this thing you just read? Hey, don't forget that because it's going to be in the next chapter. And, you know, humor, is a big part of that, right? People relate to humor. And I think I was intentional about doing that. And I also wanted it to uh, be a book that, so there's this thing, like, have you ever like heard a noise and, you know, no one else heard it? Do you hear that noise? Or did you (laughs) see that thing that just happened? Right? Like black people constantly live in that kind of state yeah. where we're wondering <laughs> if like the whole world is gaslighting. Like, is it me or that? Does that seem right. racist? Right? right. And I wanted people to know that it's not just a feeling. There is an actual historical basis mm-hmm. for it. So I wanted people to like, not necessarily explicitly say, this is why this happened. But when you read about these things, you realize, mm-hmm. oh, now I understand, right? Like when you read about the headright system, right? And that like white people got 50 acres of land for every enslaved person that they brought right. over here. And then you read about the New Deal and you read about, you know, how all of the ways that basically white people got government handouts, you understand you you might have that aha moment i don't have to say hey white people be getting government handouts i can just lay out the facts and when they make the argument that well you just black people just need to work harder and focus on education you can point to these facts and say now i'm armed with something that supports that feeling of wait what am what do you mean like we worked all these years for free what do you mean work hard Right. Right. And so those are the things that I wanted to do with this book. Yeah, there's a there's a few moments that I noted for myself of like sort of these aha moments. And, you know, I love history and I read a lot of history. I I read a lot for this job. Like I've read, you know, Carol Anderson is one of my favorite authors. Like she she's been so helpful with my thinking about history. But there's a few moments in this book where I was like, how had I never thought about black history or American history in this way, which is one where you talk about how the Civil War was really a battle between three sides, this idea that it wasn't actually like the North versus the South or the slaveholders versus the non-slaveholders, but that Black people were their own side and that they were fighting for their freedom and that regardless of what everyone else was doing, like they were unified in picking the side that was the best for them and that they were pulling and they were shaping the conversation. And it wasn't just something that happened to them, but that Black people were an active part of what happened with the Civil War. And similarly with the Revolutionary War and that they went from the British to the the, uh, Patriots or or the Americans. And I had a similar moment when you talked about um, Black people and religion and how the religions, Black people didn't convert to Christianity. Christianity converted to Black people and that Black people shaped what religion looked like in America too. And, And there were so many moments like that in the book that I think like those aha moments you're speaking to, I certainly like felt them and had them and was like, let me take a note here. (laughs) Yeah. I think, I think that context 
Like, like, so you can learn that black people got here in 1619, right? And you can learn that, oh, the King James Bible was written in 1609. But when you put it in the context of, oh, those two things happened simultaneously, there wasn't like this Christian religion that we know now wasn't pervasive. And so there were new black people and a new religion on the scene that was being shaped at the same time. Right. Just the I just putting them next to each other gives you context of, oh, that's why it is the way it is. And you don't have to explicitly again, explicitly say it. You could just present the facts and say, hey, like it was this new thing called Christianity and this new thing in America, this race based slavery. And those two develop simultaneously. Mm-hmm. And knowing that gives you a new context it is i don't even know if it is reframing history as much as it is juxtaposing two things beside each other and giving people context and also like giving black people a seat at the table in some of these conversations because i feel like so much of history american history the way that it's taught is like this like you were saying before this happened and black people were there and not that black people were making things happen another point in the book that i had this similar feeling was when you talked about like the red summer and and the ways that, you know, these white mob violence against black communities. And it had always been taught to me that white people were upset with black people having freedom. And in this book, you really set it up more like black people were thriving and white people were floundering. And like, let's not forget that the white people had lost their bearings. Like they didn't know what the fuck was going on. And it wasn't just that they were jealous, but that they felt that they, that something had been taken from them and that black people were doing so well and they were just basically loser fuck ups. Uh, And I felt like, Oh, right. Sure. It's not just like, Oh, black people have a thing. It's that black people have a thing and white people are, lackluster in this case yeah i think i think that is important you know there's a statistic that i think people always find surprising in that before the on the eve of the civil war you know because black people were property the value of that human property was worth more than all of the banks and all of the uh the factories and all of the railroads in america combined now imagine taking that away to from an economy and right. giving it essentially to black people because we own ourselves right? right so imagine the kind of chaos that would engender and i think you can understand history better and you can understand what happened better when you understand it in that context yeah you include a lot of stories of rebellion throughout the book um which I don't know about you, but every time I read stories of like enslaved people rebelling, I get like super hype. I'm like, yeah, fuck yeah, we did that. Uh, <laughs> but I'm wondering why why you wanted to spend so much time on those stories. Well, one of it, one of the reasons is it's like my favorite kind of black story, like okay. the explicit <laughs> same, rebellion. Same, same. <laughs> and then the other part of it is that if. So, of course, there's this historical narrative. And I, again, I don't have to say it explicitly. Like, there were happy slaves. And, you know, it was a product of the time, right? And right. that is counterbalanced by the fact that there were so many rebellions all across the country and in every mm. state and in every, right? So if it was this frequent, that idea that the people were happy and 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 complacent goes against the stuff that they actually did and all of the laws they had to pass and all of the protections they like white people had to take to ensure that they were protected against this constant looming threat of rebellion and so knowing about that and knowing because a lot of us don't know about this because we've learned this a whitewashed version of history, it would make it makes us think that we didn't rebel against the stuff that was mm-hmm. done to to us, and not that no, they had to put a whole system of laws and uh, buildings and 
armories in place because they knew they couldn't control us on their own. Like it was not even a fair fight. They couldn't even stand up to a fair fight. And knowing that kind of empowers you. And in my opinion, I I felt that I definitely felt that. And like, there were some rebellions that I'd never heard of before. And I was like, Ooh, this is a new one. I love it here. Like it, it is empowering. And it also is like, again, like I keep harping on is that black people shaped this country. This can like, we, like it or not, we shaped the police. The police are here because of how badass we were. Like they right. weren't here before. Like we, you know, it's definitely a double-edged sword, but it is like that that we invented these things, that we we created a need for so many things in this country that otherwise would not have been. And obviously not necessarily a great reason, but it is something that we did that we contributed in ways. Um and and I I feel like you know the rebellion stories also just feel really good to read. They just feel nice. I I'm just yeah. like I'm proud of us. Like this is great. Um, you mentioned a little bit having someone who helped you sort of like with the historical stuff. But how how did you research? I know that you know so much. I know that you're a wealth of knowledge. You talk about it from a young age. Um, talking about like Reagan's that's like the first story in the book Reagan's election and how your grandma was like how do you know this and you were like well I've been in the small room reading books or whatever but how much research did you have to do for this book and how much stuff did you sort of already know and you were just fleshing out like how did you outline this how did kind of how did this come to be because it's a big undertaking it's a it's 400 years 400 plus years so I don't know what percentage I knew versus what percentage I didn't know. I know probably most of it I didn't know. And some of it, most, a lot of it I learned specifically for the book. And the research was uh, a lot of ways, right? Uh, Going through black newspapers, looking up primary sources, traveling to places, uh, Mm. ask, talking, asking his, uh, historians like, Hey, what, if I wanted to know more about this, uh, where could I find it? And so it was almost every piece of research, a lot, buying a lot of books on the subject, uh, Luckily, uh, like Kendall, for instance, was a great help, right? So if you need to know, like I bought a lot of books because I needed to know one specific fact and it was only <laughs> in this book. And so I had oh to just gosh. buy the book to to find out one specific fact. And so it was a, a, a lot of, uh, it was basically every kind of way that you can learn history, um, some from oral history, some from research, listening to interviews. Um, mm. So it was a bunch of different sources. And when you said you started this in 2018? Uh, 2019 is when I really got started on the book. Wow. So four years or three years, I guess, and then the year that it yes. takes for the book to actually come out. Yeah. <laughs> that yeah. fake year. Um, that's wild. Was there any thing that you learned in the writing of this book that really surprised you or that wasn't what you had thought it was going in? So one of the things that surprised me is the idea that, first of all, there was a kind of a brick wall that you hit and it is really shocking. When you research, you know, you can find out that, okay, this person said this or wrote this. Mm-hmm. in this newspaper on this date, this black person. Mm-hmm. And then I would want to pull up the actual article from the newspaper. Mm-hmm. And there would always be two sentences that almost were all the same. It says, no surviving copies exist burned mm-hmm. by a white mob. <gasps> it is shocking how many wow. newspapers. Like, so as much as we know about Ida B. Wells, we right. can't read most of what she wrote because wow. remember the Memphis free speech was burned by a white mob, right? Um, right. Like the, we would know more about, for instance, ble- the bleeding Kansas war, but those newspapers were burned by, it is mm. shocking how many, uh, not just newspapers, like on every HBCU campus, their oldest building you'll, hmm always see was like built in the early 1900s because the first structure was burned down like right after reconstruction the same with Mm. churches just so many black historical figures were burned buildings were burned by a white mob and then the other thing is kind of the opposite of that 
a lot of what we thought was lost to history really wasn't lost. So when, for instance, I'm research, researching the history of enslaved people, um, like it wasn't that white people went over to Africa and just got like the first strongest people they could find. When they wanted to grow rice, they went to the specific places and cultures that had the technology and the knowledge mm-hmm. and the horticulturists that knew how to grow mm-hmm. rice and got those people. And then when they, like the state of Virginia, the, the biggest export was iron because they went to Africa to the mm-hmm. cultures that were iron workers and got those master blacksmiths and brought them here. So like we, a lot of times we think like a lot of our history was lost, but a lot of our history still exists because they wrote down and told each other, hey, you could go over here right. and get you if right. you want to go right. If you want some iron, good iron workers, man, you could go over here, right? And right. not only did they tell each other right, but then that boosted their economy because they would say, you know, they could, they had to prove that, hey, these mm-hmm. people you're about to buy, they come from this place that has iron workers, right? Right. So I, you don't have to take my word for it. Here's the here's the shipping, uh, basically what were shipping labels, right? Right. And so th- right. those those things to prove and to boost their economy, they still exist. And a lot of our history wasn't lost. We it just wasn't taught to us, but they knew, right? Right. Right. Ugh. Okay, we're gonna take a quick break, and we're gonna be right back. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. All right, we're back. I want to ask you about uh, the current state of American history classes in America. I mean, you talked about how people didn't know about critical race theory when you were pitching the other book, but now we know. And 
there's this really fun thing that the Caucasians are doing, which is banning books that teach real life history, uh, especially those of people from marginalized groups or any of the good stuff. So I'm wondering, what do you like? Do you feel like this book has a place in these conversations? Do you do you feel like you can speak to sort of what's at stake right now in the ways that they're shutting down American history being told and the history of people like I'm just curious what this means to you, a person who is a former teacher and a historian and a, a smart, a smart person who thinks a lot like what do you how are you seeing this moment? Well, I see it part as part of a continuum, right? So mm-hmm. as soon as black people were able to educate themselves, <laughs> this process started, right? So the the daughters of the Confederacy, we talk about this in the book, they started right yeah. after the Civil War when black people were uh, able to educate themselves. And in the 50s and the 60s, there was the same movement. What a lot of people don't know is that what even let's take what we know and what we learn in in schools now. Our parents didn't learn that. Right. So even like including a little bit that's in the schools now that started in the 60s and the 70s. They didn't learn anything before then mm-hmm. not about slavery not about black people uh the ku klux klan were the good guys back then right, and right, like right. until the 50s and the 60s right so my mom and my uncles and aunts they didn't learn about this stuff which is why there were books like before the mayflower Hour. there were magazines like Ebony would have historical articles in them, right? Mm-hmm. Because this stuff did not exist because mm-hmm. it was intentionally excluded. So what we're seeing now is a continuum of that effort, right? So the Moms for Liberty of today is just the old white ladies who were the daughters of the daughters of the daughters right. of the Confederacy, right? The, right? Or maybe the granddaughters of the daughters of Confederacy, right? It's not a new effort. Um, and it's not really a really successful effort because they can't really stop black people from learning things. Right. And so that's part of what I, I, how I feel about it. And the other thing is I do not think that this effort would be so prominent if like, I don't think that educators and, and white people care that black people learn things or learn about history if that didn't translate into something else, right? Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. if you, for instance, are a 12-year-old kid in a school and you you think that, well, all those black people in that neighborhood are poor because they don't focus on education and, you know, crime and they're a little bit violent, like my mama says, but you learned at school about redlining. You learn about mm-hmm. how the police were invented. You learn about all of this. You learn about how your grandparents got government handouts in the New Deal. Mm-hmm. Then you begin to not only see America in a different way, you realize, hey, if, if I don't like when my windows are busted out, why don't we do the same thing that they did for my grandparents, right? Why don't we improve the con- the economy by, because mm-hmm. it ain't really, a there is a, in a democracy, there is no such thing as a government, right? It's just us, right? right? That's our money. Right. It's not like the right. government right. is right. pulling money out of, making money out of oxygen right. or rain. or It's just right. our money, right? And we right. say, right. we're going to do this with our money, right? So I think that is part of it. And then again, the other part of it is, and this is one of my beliefs, that they're not banning books about Black history, they're not trying to stop people from learning black history. The top's trying to stop people from learning white history. They learn. Right. They don't want people to learn what white people did. Black mm-hmm. people, they were cool with you teaching, like, slaves existed, but not what white people did to them. They're right. cool with you learning about the end of segregation, but not about their gra- your grandparents spitting on those black kids' faces when they integrated right. the school, right? That's the stuff that they're trying to ban, not what we did, mm. but what white people did. 
Right. Okay. So then let me ask you this follow-up question because it comes up in the book a little bit too, when they're talking about like black people getting the right to vote. And I, obviously there's sort of a connection about what's going on here. Is any of what we're experiencing now new? Is any of it actually new or is the media just, we're new people. And so we're learning it all over again. Or is there something about this moment that feels particularly alarming or horrible? Or is this just all on that continuum? So I think none of it is new. I think what is kind of new is that white people get to hear what black people think mm. about the stuff that's going on, right? Mm. So when you talk about the lynching movement, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, white people listen to the other white people about that, right? So they didn't hear us complaining or saying, hey, you know, we know these uh, accusations of rape and murder are lies, right? So they believed because the white people own the newspapers and the telegraphs and all of that. And and the same thing is true in the early 1900s. And the same thing is true even in the civil rights movement, right? Mm-hmm. They didn't, like you could hear what Martin Luther King said in a speech, but you didn't mm-hmm. hear what black people were saying in barbershops and on right. the streets because America was segregated. Like, like you didn't, you didn't sit next to a black person in school. You didn't work right, next, right. with a black person. So you, there was really no way for white people to hear what black people thought. Mm-hmm. And now because they hear what black people think, they think it is something that we have manufactured. So they deem it woke. They think mm-hmm. that, it is a new rise of anger or they think of it as anti-white because they hear unfiltered what black people think about this country and about this world and about what white people have done to them. And so the only new thing is that like, I don't think there is a, an obstacle between black voices and white people's ears. And Mm. that is the new thing that causes the alarm and this this new regurgitated movement. Mm. Um, that's so that's so well put and so smart. I feel like I have to tell you this. One of the things that your book made me feel, I, I personally have a hatred of the musical Hamilton. And your book made me hate Hamilton even more because I kept thinking about how much real history we could have been talking about when we were talking about fucking Alexander Hamilton and his friends instead of this fake narrative and i know that that that's not really what your job is but i just wanted to let you know that it validated me in a lot of ways and i now hate hamilton even more Uh, (laughs) (laughs) sort of a non-sequitur but i feel like i feel kind of the same way because like i feel like they could have told the truth in hamilton and because it's it's in a song people are going to like it anyway Right. Yeah, and like uh, the thing that I really hate about the musical, not to go on a tangent, but this always comes up. But the thing that really pisses me off about Hamilton is that you've taken black and brown Americans and descendants of people who were slaves or enslaved or whatever, and then you've put them in position of being the heroes as the white people who are the people who are responsible for what happened to them and their families. So basically you're like, we're just going to put these white people in like theatrical blackface and say like, now you can root now immigrants. We get the job done. Well, we weren't actually fucking immigrants, pal. You know what we were? We were captured from our home. Okay. By you and your little friends. And it just well, really to, pisses me off. You want to make uh, you want, you want to get madder. Think about yeah. this. This is because I don't even I didn't ever thought of it that way. But the music and the art form created yes. by black people as a response to their oppression was it's used the vehicle for the show to, to to use and was used to valorize the people who made them create the music in the first place. as a response to their oppression. And the musical's three hours long, and then Lin-Manuel Miranda has the audacity to say, well, we didn't have time to include slavery. What do you mean? You had three hours. You included every detail of the federal bank. Excuse me? What are you talking about? It's just, it, it makes me so mad. It is one of those things where I'm just like, there's so much you could have done. There's so, like... And it's just frustrating. And then when I read something like what you did and I'm like, oh, wow, somebody actually did a thing that's interesting and smart about American history and didn't have to like fake the funk to get there. Just 
anyways, this is my endorsement of your book and my scathing review of Hamilton seven years later. Uh, <laughs> um, oh, wait, wait. We got to talk about the cover and the title. Um, where did you come up with these things? Were you involved in the cover? How much were you involved in the cover? Were there other titles for this book? Talk about it. So Sarah Honey Young is an artist that did the cover. And, you know, she created a whole backstory for the cover, right? So her backstory was a kid sitting in class uh, with a, a book, a history book that had that cover of, uh, if you hadn't seen it, it's the cover, the famous painting of the Declaration of Independence. And she, the student f- rips away the cover and finds the real history of black people under the cover, right? So we, what we did is went back to that painting and mm-hmm. there is, there exists a kind of a, a guide to, okay, this is this person on this painting. So there is a roadmap to everybody. And so we researched the history of those people. So when I say human smuggler, that is the actual person. Mm. That is the history of the actual person, right? So some of them were drug smugglers. Some of mm-hmm. them were thieves. Some That's how they built their fortunes. And that's how they became what we call founding fathers. So we researched, mm. like like every little bit was researched and it, it means something, even the cover. I love it. And what about the title? Black AF History. So um, I, I, I have, I actually trademark black af like years ago so okay. i am a uh people don't a lot of people don't know like i am a poet also and when i would travel doing poetry years ago of course there's no money or acclaim or fame in poetry so you got to figure out a way to make uh money mm. and i would sell shirts that that said black af and so i trademark trademarked it and of course when i decided to write the history book it seemed like a perfect name for me. Yeah. Is there anything that's not in this book that you wish could be or was? Oh, yeah. There's a lot that that I wish. Um, the story of Moses Dixon and the National Slave Revolt. Um, I wish I could have gone into that more. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are... Well, I, I think I went pretty deep into the Gullah culture. There are a bunch of like I could have overdosed you guys on just <laughs> slave revolts if if I if I wanted to. Um, right. Uh, just there are so many small detailed stories. Uh, you could do a story on just the music, um, mm-hmm. and you could do one on just uh, HBCUs. And the development just on sports. So there's so many uh, things that I I wish I could have included in the book. There was a chapter, a whole chapter that we decided not to include on the history of and the complex stories of mixed race in America. Mm, And and my people. Right. From (laughs) from the Hemings to, you know, there's. George Washington has descendants um, right. uh, in the Madisons, right? And so there was that whole, a whole chapter on just black towns and how these towns mm. came to be. Uh, the other <sighs> Wall Streets was a, another, uh, the other black Wall Streets. Like the black Wall Street that we hear about in Tulsa was like the, the one of the lesser known black Wall Streets. Wow. Like at the time, if you would have said black Wall Street, they would have probably assumed you were talking about uh Durham, North Carolina, a section they call Haiti or or uh, Virginia in Richmond, Virginia. Mm. So those are uh, there's a bunch of stuff that I wish I could have included. Wow. Okay, I want to talk quickly about your process. How do you write? Where are you? Are you listening to music or no? Are there snacks and beverages? How often? All that kind of stuff. So when I was writing this book, I did this crazy thing that I'm still trying to get out of called uh, biphasic sleep. Uh, so apparently there's this theory that for the his, most of the history of mankind, we slept in two cycles. We would go to sleep when the sun was down, wake up in the middle of the night, what they call the witching hour. You know, and that's when we would make kids. That's when we would read the Bible. That's when we okay. would take care of the animals because the animals were asleep. We would milk the cows and stuff like that and then go to sleep and wake up again when the sun went up. Well, I did that. And it actually works. You sleep. Wow. I'd go to sleep about uh, eight or nine o'clock, wake up about midnight. Uh, to three or four and write 
and then sleep from about four till about seven or eight and get up and you'd be actually refreshed. And now mm. I can't get out of that sleep habit. Oh. Um, but that's when I, like I would write during the day because I got a regular job at the Grio and then uh, write at, write the book at night. So that was part of my process. There were no snacks. I can't really. So I'm very severely uh, ADHD. So I couldn't, I can't have any like uh, okay. sounds no distractions. or anything. Yeah. Okay. Right. So, um, Got it. so that's how Got I it. worked. So now that you're still in that cycle, what are you doing with those hours in the middle of the night? Well, I still have, um, like, it's almost like a weekly uh, version of Hamilton I'm doing at a, on a podcast called Drapetomaniacs. So we take, uh, you know, Pharrell, the producer, and I take a different story, every black story every week that's really people don't know about or an aspect of a person that people don't know about and do a, a episode that uses music and sound and celebrity voices to narrate this story. So I'm writing that in the middle of the night. Um, I'm working on the next book. There's always something to, to write. So, uh, yeah, that's what Do I'm doing. Find- and, and I'm trying to watch TV, like catch up on everything. Okay. <laughs> uh, so that's, that's what I'm doing. Do you find it easy to wake up at that time? And like, cause like when I wake up in the middle of the night, I want to go back to sleep immediately. Like sometimes I'll be like, oh, I'm wide awake. And then I'll start reading a book and I'll be asleep in 10 minutes. So is it easy for you to wake up in the middle of the night? Or was that a struggle to get into that process? Well, I think, so it's just crazy that I get more sleep now. So Mm. I was always a night person. So I would stay up until three or four o'clock in the morning. But of course, you got to go to work the next day. So you have to wake up and you get less sleep. But when you Ooh. break it up into two different cycles, you're more likely to get six to eight hours of sleep than I was if I would stay up to like two or three in the morning, just because I'm a night person anyway. So Got I'm it. used to doing stuff at night. Got it. I'm the opposite. I need my sleep. I Sometimes I go to bed when you go to bed and don't wake up in the middle of the night. I wake up in the morning. Like I'm like a, a heavy need for sleep person. So you're like a real life influencer. Um, not like a I sell, you know, gummy vitamins, but like a person who really influences the culture and shapes the way people think about things, especially like via Twitter. I feel like so many people know you from that. And you're on television, as I mentioned before, you write for the Grio and, and you're just like a person who's influential in the thinking of America specifically, I think, for a lot of black Americans. Do you ever feel pressure or stress around that? Uh, no, not really, because... Um, well, it's two things, right? I don't feel a lot of pressure or stress because I often turn down stuff that I don't know about. Like, I don't want to go on and say crazy stuff. Like, I'm not going to be on the TV talking about relationships or, uh, (laughs) right? Like, so I don't feel the pressure to talk about stuff that I don't know about. And I don't feel the, the need to talk about areas that someone else already covered, right? So- and then I kind of don't want to influence necessarily what people think, but to say, hey, have you ever thought about it like this, though? Right. Mm-hmm. And not saying I'm right and you're wrong, but hey, you never considered this. Right. <laughs> and here's a fact that is is based. I'm not saying that like government handouts um, are bad or good. All I'm saying is that when we need to rebuild that economy, mm-hmm. we came, we created the largest government program in the history of the world, and it kind of worked, right? That's why mm-hmm. we have a middle class. I'm not saying that you're wrong, but I got history on my side. You ever thought about that, <laughs> right? So yeah, so I don't, I don't feel the need to comment on stuff that I don't know about or that like my voice isn't needed in that conversation. Yeah. Okay. What about a word that you can never spell correctly on the first try? Oh gosh, there's so, okay. Um, the biggest word I always like have to look up. I I, I get Wednesday mixed up mm. a lot. And, uh, oh, this is, this is the number one on the list. Sergeant. Oh, I don't think I know how to spell. I'm a terrible speller, but I don't think I've ever had to spell that. S A R. G E N T. I don't. I don't. I don't know. I don't think that's right. Though. I gotta like Google it. it now. I don't think that seemed too easy. Sergeant. I'm googling. No, there's an A. S E R 
G-E-A-N-T. Yeah. No, well, okay, I can't spell it either, apparently. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Sergeant. I get a bunch of those at Caribbean, especially double oh, letters. Yeah. Like which, Double letters. Caribbean, Sheriff. Sheriff. I can't, one that I realized I can't do recently is separate or separately. Can't mm. do that. Because I've been writing a lot about separate Mm. And I can't, I can't do it. I have no clue. Every time I get the red line and I'm just like, I'm done. I've given up on this word. Just tattoo it on my hand or something. I don't know. Um, So for people who love Black AF history, what are some other books that you might recommend to them that are in conversation with your work? Uh, I think The Souls of Black Folk, uh, Before the Mayflower. And there are some other books that not aren't necessarily about history books, A Black Man's Guide to the Constitution by Ellie Mastall. Mm, so good. Uh, right. Uh, uh, Blair Kelly's book on, called Black Folk uh, mm. is really good. So, yeah, uh, those are some books that I think that people kind of would, that kind of have the voice and the perspective yeah. while they might not necessarily be about the same subjects. Yeah, to- I that the LMSL is such a good such a good book to be in conversation with because they are similar like similar in tone. There's that similar sense of humor and also like there's a black person telling you about this stuff. Like this is our perspective. You know, I I'd love that, love that. Um, what do you hope people will keep in mind as they read your book? I think one of the things that I I think that they will will realize and and recognize is that I. Again, back to what I was saying earlier, right? This is not saying like the stuff that you learned was wrong because it's I'm mo- most of the book is not saying it didn't happen the way you you learned it. It happened this way. What it was what I'm saying is this is a different perspective, right? So mm-hmm. that stuff about Lexington and Concord and the American Revolution did happen, but mm-hmm. like black people just saw two different kinds of white people fighting about something that didn't affect them. Right. (laughs) So none of that mattered to us. Right. And so I think, I think the perspective is what I hope people uh, realize. Like it's not a new history. It is a different perspective on history that already exists. I love it. Okay. Here's my last question for you. If you could have one person dead or alive, read this book, who would you want it to be? Dead or alive. Uh, I think I'd have to go with seeing just to see what W.E.B. Du Bois thinks of it. Mm. I think he's probably I really think he's the smartest person, the smartest American person in American history. And Mm. so I would just like to see what he thought about it. I love that. Such a good answer. Well, everybody, you can get Black AF History, The Unwhitewashed Story of America by Michael Harriet, wherever you get your books. It is out now. Michael, do you do the audiobook narration? Yep, I do the audiobook narration. Okay, so get the audiobook. I'm sure it's fantastic. I haven't listened to it yet. Um, but the book is great. It's out now. Get it wherever you get your books. Michael, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me and telling us what to read. <laughs> and everyone else, we will see you in the stacks. All right, y'all, that does it for us today. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you to our guest, Michael Harriet, for joining the show. I'd also like to thank Heidi Richter for helping to make this conversation possible. Remember, our October book club pick is Tar Baby by Toni Morrison, which we will be discussing on October 25th with Ninda Honey. If you love the show and want inside access to it, head over to patreon.com slash the stacks and join the stacks pack. Make sure you're subscribed to The Stacks wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts or Spotify, please leave us a rating and a review. For more from The Stacks, follow us on social media at The Stacks Pod on Instagram and TikTok and threads and at The Stacks Pod underscore on Twitter. And you can always check out our website, thestackspodcast.com. This episode of The Stacks was edited by Christian Duenas with production assistance from Lauren Tyree. Our graphic designer is Robin McCright and our theme music is from Tegira Jess. The Stacks is created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas.